It's like, oh yeah, I have to write that thing for Eric. That is today. <laughs> Welcome to the Teen Up Stories podcast for the week of Wednesday, October 7, 2014. On every opposite Wednesday to the release of the Mars Hill Student Newspaper, we bring you an array of interdisciplinary arts, stories, and ideas surrounding a specific theme from Trinity Western students and alumni. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the administration or the alumni association, but we really hope they like it. Today's theme is identity. On the show, Brian Sandberg talks about what it's like to grow up evangelical and gay. Jordan Clausen wants to be a writer, but does that mean she has to wear a vintage cat sweater? And Jaron Newfeld channels his inner Seneca in a song to teach us how to live. Stay tuned. Now, I was quite good at writing in elementary school and junior high and senior high. But somehow, when I reached university, I wasn't anymore. Maybe I felt demoralized from my A- minus on my English 30 final. That might have been part of it. I think the more impacting idea that forced itself in and around me as I entered the university universe was the fact that writers had definition. I had liked to think that anyone can write anywhere. I remember imagining while hearing the story of Roald Dahl writing in the dust of his car just to make sure he didn't lose a good idea. Somehow I always saw him in overalls and a plaid shirt driving an old red truck like my grandpa. It was easy to relate to that man as a writer. I don't really know what Roald Dahl looks like, but I imagine he's tall. Upon entering the land of learned people, my fantasies of a farmer writer seemed to fly swiftly out the window. Suddenly, if you were a writer, you were defined by several things, some general and some specific. Possibly true, but mostly false. You have to be hip. Maybe it was my imagination over idealizing English majors I met, but they all seemed to come with this incredible sense of style. But not like in the in way, in the like super hipster, I bought this from an antique store and you should be jealous of my trendily obnoxious, ridiculous cat sweater sort of way. Except maybe not quite that explicit. You have to like to read. A lot. You know, it does make sense that someone who likes to write would love to read as well. What seems slightly illogical to me is the utter obsession with reading everything that you can get your hands on and making absolutely sure you read all of the New York Times bestsellers. I like to think historically about this one. I stroll back to a time when it was a family library, that the books in the house had been collected over the years by the generations that had come before, so then as a child, you could read through the same material your parents and grandparents had, therefore taking a look into the stories that formed their ideologies and worldviews. I don't remember the last time I bought an actual book from a bookstore. I remember asking my parents for book recommendations and being handed the Chronicles of Narnia. Enough said. But seriously, reading is great, and the writer would be nowhere without their readers. But there is a difference between enjoying and obsessing and creating a duty to books instead of a duty to yourself. 
You have to have wanted to be a writer all of your life. I can honestly say right now, being a writer is the most realistic career option for me, yet I never wanted to be one as a kid. The closest I got was probably a journalist, and that idea was only fleeting in grade school. Writing has to be a hidden passion only pursued by those in the most unlikely of circumstances, which a writer will fan out quite well, even if they are but mild life problems. You can write sometimes. You cannot write sometimes. All of us are writers. It's not so much about who is a writer, but when we are writers. When does inspiration strike, and when does our heart swell or sink? Timing. Far more important than desiring. The biggest fable surrounding the writer today is that they have to own an antique typewriter. No lie, I did at one point. Be a hopeless romantic with a hopeless love life, drink lots of coffee, and live in Portland. That's the most obvious tall tale surrounding the idea of what the writer is. The writer is human. I understand that grammar is a big deal, but people write as they speak. You can tell their intention from their tone and their eyes. Writing isn't a matter of periods and the Oxford comma. As Ernest Hemingway put it, it is not that difficult to write. All you have to do is sit down at the typewriter and bleed. Everyone can write, anywhere, any way they want, even me. I don't worry, 
like the birds of air Cause my father cares for them For five years now I've traveled south From a northern town Just to learn how to live I listen to the metal fold They add their years to my own And I can take what I please Growing up on the mission field in the southern Philippines, it seemed everybody knew who I was and what my future was going to be. I was going to continue my parents' ministry, marry a beautiful woman, and have about 3.5 children. I was going to use my impressive intellect and fiery spiritual passion to lead evangelistic crusades that would bring millions to Christ. And I was going to be a pastor, obviously. Why wouldn't I be? I was the son of two missionaries who seemed to be pioneering some grand new project every time you turned around. The funny thing about all these predictions is, for how incredible they were, I don't think anyone actually knew who I was as a child, least of all me. Not that it made a difference. I grew up believing every word of it. I was young, and I didn't know any better than to believe that other people would have a better grasp of my identity and my future than I myself could have. I had a vision of my future, and it was through beautiful, rose-tinted Jesus glasses. It didn't take long, though, for that vision to unravel. Around the age of 11, I, the bright and charming little Christian boy who had been pegged for years as someone who was going to be the next big leader in Christian ministry, I began to realize I was attracted to guys. I immediately tried to bury my feelings under sick layers of perfectionism and paranoia. Nobody was going to know they were wrong about me, not ever. Besides, these feelings were not supposed to be there. I was supposed to be the perfect Christian child, the minister's son who grew up to lead a church with his future wife and his 3.5 children behind him every step of the way. Any attraction I may have felt to a good-looking boy in my 7th grade class was clearly just some kind of phase. I knew who I was destined to be, and I knew I could not be both that and, I shuddered to even think of it, homosexual. However, try as hard as I did to ignore, destroy, or rationalize my feelings, I eventually was forced to accept what I found to be a hard reality. I was, without question, attracted to guys. Gay. Not the perfect Christian boy I thought I was born to be. Not the boy who would grow up to have a wife and 3.5 children. 
not the boy who would grow up to make his parents proud by continuing their ministry, and certainly not the boy who would become a pastor of all things. So then I was lost, completely, utterly lost. In the course of just a few years of adolescence, my entire identity had been ripped away from me and replaced with this curse, this stain of a sexual orientation that marked me as different, as not Christian enough. My heart broke. It wasn't even my fault. I didn't want things to be this way. I had tried so hard to be good, to be not gay, but it didn't work, and now all of my dreams lay in tatters before me. I asked God why he would do this to me, why he would give me so many beautiful things, only to then steal them away by making me gay. It was betrayal on a cosmic scale. I wasn't mad at God, though. If God had done this to me, then I clearly deserved it. In response, I resolved to make myself as small as possible, to hide. I came up with an entirely fake identity for myself, one that I thought was presentable enough to get me through the day. But that was just a temporary solution. The best thing of all, I felt, would have been to disappear entirely, to become no more. The irony of fighting my sexual orientation is that in doing so, I only made it bigger in my life, like a puffer fish that expands when it feels threatened. Being gay became all-consuming for me. I couldn't get through one day in my teenage years without thinking for hours about what being gay meant to me. When I hated myself, it was because I was gay. When I eventually came to accept my orientation and believe God loved me as I was, the fact that I was gay was still the private rallying point for everything I thought or did. The pufferfish mentality was still there. It was just being threatened for a different reason. And like a territorial beast, the pufferfish would not allow anything else to swim in the monopolized ocean of my identity. When I finally came to Trinity Western after 15 years of growing up on the mission field, I was very excited, but also completely terrified. The pufferfish in my brain was still ready to be attacked at any moment, and it was forever on the lookout for threats. As a gay Christian who was just beginning to accept his identity and overcome persecution from others, I needed everyone to agree with me, or else we could not be friends. It was simply not possible. My pufferfish brain forbade me from getting too close to anything that would threaten me. In time, though, things changed. I began to find people who I could trust. I began to feel safe. I discovered I no longer needed to be on the defensive, to have to fight every day to believe I deserved to be treated with dignity. And as the pufferfish calmed down, I was able to discover I had an identity that was far, far, far more than just being gay. Finally, at 19 years old, it was as if I was meeting myself, the real me, the holistic me, for the very first time in what was a jolting, life-altering experience. I discovered I had a messy, marvelous, multifaceted identity, just like everyone else I knew and admired. My entire being was not defined by one all-encompassing characteristic, nor was I lesser, inferior, cursed, or deprived. I was a little bit different, but we all are for one thing or another. And gradually, slowly, as I was able to peacefully and safely explore all of these truths, I finally found peace in a flourishing and blossoming sense of identity that was rooted and growing in Christ. I remember one day, towards the end of my first year of university, as I was walking back to my dorm in Fraser, 
suddenly stopping and looking at the beautiful springtime scene all around me. I haven't thought about the fact that I'm gay in weeks, I saw it. I smiled to myself just a little bit and then continued walking up to my dorm to see my friends. Thanks so much for sharing, Brian. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, I just had a few questions about your story, especially as it pertains to Trinity Western. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I think, for um, people that aren't familiar with gay Christians or people that don't think it's a... Um, maybe there's probably some people on campus that don't think it's a, a possibility for someone to be both gay and Christian. And I was wondering uh, where... You, where you personally come to on that? Like, how do you how do you reconcile those two things? I do believe that you can be gay and a Christian, and a lot of that has to do with what I discovered when I looked at what it means to be gay in the first place. I believe that being gay is an immutable characteristic and one that is not chosen. And so I don't believe it can be a sin because to me, a sin is turning your will against the will of God. And if it's something that's not part of your will, if it's something that you didn't choose, there's no way that it could be a sin. To me, it would be like asking, is it a sin to be born an Asian? Because you have about as much control over that as you do over whether or not you're gay. So for that reason, I would say, absolutely, I think you can be gay and Christian. Awesome. Thanks. Um, what's one thing you're tired of hearing from Christians? The people at Trinity have been really good. So this is not an indictment against anyone here. Because I actually really like the people here. I think a lot of people here are really great models for positive Christian engagement. But I have heard outside of Trinity especially, some things that are really annoying. So I think the number one thing that I am extremely tired of hearing is when people conflate behavior with identity, which is when people say that you can stop being gay if you stop engaging in same-sex activity which doesn't make any sense because do you stop being straight if you're a single heterosexual man? So I just feel like there is a complete lack of logical consistency there and people just generally don't seem to understand how sexual orientation works in the first place and yet they have lots of opinions on it. And it's frustrating for me when they voice those opinions, not because they're not allowed to have an opinion, but because the opinion proves that they don't know what they're talking about. Because if they actually would study sexual orientation, what it is, where it comes from, 
then they would know that a lot of their beliefs are logically inconsistent. And that's really the frustrating thing for me. On the, on the, other, on the other side, you mentioned mm -hmm. that you really enjoyed uh, Trinity Western. What's mm -hmm. one thing or a few things that, um, about Trinity Western that, um, that is different? What, what is a positive example of a way that a, someone can be a good Christian? I have had so many positive conversations with people here who don't necessarily know what they believe, but believe that showing dignity and love to another person is more important than anything. And that is something that you often don't see outside of Trinity, I would say. I've found that a lot of Christians are obsessed with answers. They would subscribe to what I would call answerianity, where I have to know what I think about something before I can interact with you so that I know I'm getting it right. Whereas I feel like there are a lot of people here who have been just incredibly gracious in saying, I don't know how I feel, but I love you. And that's the end of the question. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. That really exemplifies, I think, a Christ-like orientation. Do you have any stories? You, obviously, you don't have to like mention any names or anything, but mm -hmm. do you have any experiences here that were kind of like worse, where you felt marginalized or you felt excluded? Has that been part of your training experience? And if it has, is there anything we can do to make it easier? See, that's it's it's difficult to talk about being marginalized as a gay person in the church sometimes because a lot of the marginalization is invisible. And so it's not always explicitly somebody telling you, oh, we're marginalizing you. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> it's just you look around and you start to wonder, do other people have it better than me? And... It's when you start to ask those questions that you start to wonder if you're being marginalized. And there are so many questions that I would have, because I'm not everywhere all the time. I don't hear every conversation that goes on. I, don't, I can't see into the mind of every person to see how they feel about me. So I don't know for sure. And there are times where I could probably make a solid case to say that at this time or at this other time, I was unfairly marginalized. But I have an attitude that says I don't want to view my life that way. I don't want to have a life that revolves around finding all of the points and all the times when I was marginalized or excluded because I think that just goes back to, as I was saying in my story, the pufferfish mentality where your identity becomes fighting for yourself. And there are people out there that, that are 
activists and who do incredible work and they're very necessary. What I am talking about is more defining your identity based on marginalization, which I don't think is particularly healthy. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. How would you describe, you did a little bit in your story already, but but if you want to just flesh it out mm-hmm. a little bit more, how would you describe your identity today, now? Who is Brian Sandberg? What's your identity? I would describe myself first and foremost as a Christian. And it's interesting because, I mean, when I was younger, I would say that because that's the Christian answer you're supposed to give. But I feel like I'm reaching a point in my life where that's my genuine answer. Mm. And I think that's a really beautiful thing that I feel like I'm now able to reach that point. Um, But obviously, all Christians are different. So there's a lot more to that. I would say I, I would say my sexual orientation is a huge part of who I am. Um, just because it's influenced so much of my life, and I know I would be a radically different person if I had not been gay, just because I would have had completely different life experiences as a result of it. But there are so many other things now that I can see that are a big part of my life. Um, I know comedy and humor has been a big part of my life. I know writing has been a big part of my life. And more and more, what I'm trying to make part of my identity and part of who I am is the sense of mission that God has given me. Even in just the small things, like ministering to my friends or in doing the best job that I can with whatever task I'm given, whether that be schoolwork, whether that be a performance. I just want to do my best. And I feel like that becomes part of my identity as well, being faithful to the tasks that God has given to me. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and you, you mentioned in your story that um, that when you were younger, you were, you had this goal. You were going to be a mm-hmm. be a pastor, and you're going to lead this mega ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so going forward, as my last question, um, what do you see as your 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 goal now? What's your what's your future look like now? Given all this, it's interesting because when I was younger, I reached a point where I believed I could not do ministry because I was gay. And that was really hurtful to me because I felt like I wanted to do ministry and it seemed completely unfair that I would be put in this position where I couldn't do it for no fault of my own. But where, as a result, as a direct result of that, I began to ask myself, okay, then what am I doing instead? And through that... I was able to discover that I had a lot of talents and skills that I could develop and turn into a ministry that's more of a non-traditional ministry. And I genuinely believe that you can be a minister without a church. 
without any nonprofit organization, anything of that nature, you can still be a minister. You can be an accountant and be a minister. You can you know, work in a sewage plant and be a minister. It's all the same because to me, being a minister is having uh, an attitude of the heart. And so what I want to do is I want to take that attitude first and foremost and then ask myself, okay, God, I have this attitude. What am I going to direct it towards? And so where I think I would be best able to serve would be in terms of acting and writing and all of those um, things in the field of entertainment because I feel like that's an area that God has uniquely gifted me in. And I just really want to be faithful in that. That's so good. Thank you so much, Brian, for answering these questions. Um, speaking of acting, you want to plug the, the show you're in? Oh, yes. I am in The Illusion by Tony Kushner. It runs from October 21st to November 1st. It is an incredible show. Everyone who is part of it has been having a fantastic time putting it together. And you totally should come and check it out because it's fantastic. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Brian. You're welcome. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> On the podcast today, you heard the voices of my dear friends Jordan Clausen and Brian Sandberg. You can hear more about Brian's journey and insight at his blog, skyscrapergarden.wordpress.com. If you have any questions for Brian, he'd love to engage you in conversation. You can find him on Facebook or email him at brian.sandberg.mytw.ca. The song How to Live was written and recorded by Jaron Neufeld as part of the Portrait Student Album last year. Jaren's now pursuing a master's in philosophy and living in Los Angeles with his wife, Noelle. This amazing intro and outro music, along with all the background beats today, were provided by Josh Dower. You can find more of his work at soundcloud.com slash D-A-U-E-R. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes, tell your friends, and be sure to contact me, Eric DeLang, at eric.delang at mytwu.ca if you have any songs, poems, stories, or comments you want to share with the program. We'd love to have you.